We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in the series, The New Man. We've got a few more weeks of this because we're starting to kick in. Remember where we started. We needed to, first of all, know who we are in Christ. We are created new in His image. That's not just cute vernacular. It is not like God took old things and made them better. He took dead things and gave them life and made them brand new. We are created in the image of God. With that comes the responsibility. The ministry of reconciliation is what we've read time and time again. Understanding the positioning that we have in Christ. How we are seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. We've been baptized in the Spirit and therefore we operate in the gifts. But as we preach the words... That's the thing. We've preached the word, the signs follow. We've talked about all of that. Now we've transitioned in this to understand more in depth what our role is in this thing we call spiritual warfare. Because that really is crucial. We need to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are engaged in spiritual warfare. A, whether you want to be or not. And two, whether you know it or not. Because if you don't know it, you're likely losing. Because every day is a battle. This spiritual warfare thing is going on whether you like to admit it or not. And the thing we have to remember, and we're going to read this verse here in a minute, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But those are the people that we engage with. That flesh and blood are being controlled, if you will. That sounds kind of weird to say. I don't mean like they're possessed or anything like that. But by the enemy. And so in that, we have to know how to handle that. So let's start here. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you, I beg you that when I am present I may not be bold with that confidence in which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Guys, there's something that we need to understand. And this is what we're going to talk about. We need to know who we're dealing with. We need to know how they work. We need to know how we've overcome them. And we need to be able to uh, administer that as we go. When we look at this verse, and this is what I want you to see, the number one thing is what? We don't walk in the flesh, right? We are spiritual. This earth is not our home. So we walk here on this earth in the flesh, but who we are inside is seated at the right hand of God. So there's an authority there. We don't war according to the flesh, even though we want to. You ever have someone get sideways with you and you just want to give them a piece of your mind? Doesn't that feel amazing? Like, it feels so good, right? Like, you, you know, or, or, or you could take it another way. Someone puts some comment on Facebook, and it's just dead wrong. Like, hey, let me set you straight. Jim's good at this, aren't you, Jim? You know all about this. You guys, there are days that you just sit back, you pop some popcorn, and you let Jim slap some folks with some knowledge. That's what you do. But in the moment, you feel so good until you start to think, like, no, wait a minute. I don't war in carnal ways. Our weapons aren't that. We need to understand what's behind that flesh, that carnality. And we need to address it there. That doesn't mean we don't speak up. Of course we do. When there are travesties and things that are going on, we speak up. But we need to understand what we're doing. So look what he says here, verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are, are not carnal. But what are they? They are mighty in God. Boy, if you got anything, that's where you want it to be. Mighty in God. Not mighty in yourself. Not mighty in your knowledge of the Word. Not mighty in your prayer life. It is mighty in God. There is nothing mightier. But what do they do? They pull down strongholds. 
They cast down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. What is the knowledge of God? Well, look at this. We talked about this last week. These four things that every believer must know. Who is God? Number one. Number two, who am I in relationship to Him? The third thing is, how do I worship Him? And the fourth is, who is my enemy? So when we look at this, go back to that verse. It says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for what? Pulling down strongholds, and if you break this down grammatically, that are against the knowledge of God. They are good for casting down arguments that are against the knowledge of God. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. In other words, the knowledge of God is where we start. What is the knowledge of God? Who He is. We, in order to, He is only pleased when we come to Him in faith, right? And He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So all these things that come against the knowledge of God, not just does God exist, that's kind of a given. James 2 tells us that, yeah, even the demons believe that, and they tremble. But who God is, His character, and how we relate to Him, these are the things that they're coming against. It would be like a cop not knowing his authority, right? If you're in the middle of a bank robbery, you're standing in there, you got a guy outside, or standing there with a gun face at you, you want a cop knowing his rights and what he needs to do. You don't want somebody who doesn't know what they're supposed to do. You don't want some, you want a veteran. You want some guy who's been around the block a few times. You want somebody going to war with you that knows what they're doing. But if the enemy can keep you recognizing these things that go against the knowledge of God, who he is and who he says you are in him, then you will be rendered useless to the body of Christ. Because we won't know how to war. We want to take everything in the flesh. We want to take everything according to the ways of this world. We want to argue with people. We want to try to persuade them, convince them. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody in which they have no rational reasoning whatsoever to hold to the view that they hold, and you're like, how do you not see this? How on earth do you not recognize how flawed this concept is? It's the same thing when you're first introduced to the idea of Passover that the Jews celebrate every year and how every little detail of that points to Christ and you're like, how do you not see this? Well, they're willfully ignorant. They choose not to. So we don't battle against that. We don't try to persuade them by by words and all of that. But we, we attack this thing from the spiritual level. This is where we have to go. So our ability to answer these questions distinctly from the Word is crucial and is really foundational to everything that we believe. Now, I didn't come up with these questions. These were actually given me by a professor at Rhema uh, where I went to school at. But it was like it changed everything for me in that moment. Because now it's like I can quantitate everything into a simple form and say, okay, here's what we need to know. So who is God? We need to understand who the person we say is God. Uh, there are a lot of claims about who God is in the world, but we have to be able to di- differentiate the truth from the lies and the truth from the almost truth. Because when I'm dealing with somebody who doesn't believe in God and I'm having a conversation with them, I say, well, who is the God you don't believe in? And they'll give me some description of what they've heard or whatever, and more often than not, I'm like, well, that's interesting because I don't believe in that God either because it does not meet the character of the God of the Bible. They have created a God in their own mind and chosen not to believe in Him. So we got to address that. The second thing is once we have an understanding of who God is, then it comes to us. Who does he say that I am? This is a question that can keep someone locked in bondage for years. Because if you don't know who you are in Christ, then everything around you will weigh you down. 
You guys have seen this whether you realize it or not. There are some people that walk in a spiritual authority like no other. And the only reason they do that is because they know who they are. They are confident. Like, you don't often meet a cop who is not confident. They're very confident. Guys, it's that authority. And then it comes to my responsibility to this God. Is understanding worship has absolutely nothing to do with music. Is music is an avenue that we use as a tool, but my worship comes through obedience. My life is no longer my own. It is my spiritual act of worship to lay my life down as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, acceptable to Him. We have to do that. And then the last thing is understanding who my enemy is equally important with who my enemy is not. And who your enemy is not is the person standing across from you. Okay? Unless they're Iowa fans, then that's acceptable. All right? But who your enemy is not is not that person. And I'll show you guys this uh, here probably next week. But when you look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and these different descriptions that you have of Satan, he first addresses the person and then he addresses the person or the power behind the person. And so what I want you to understand as we go forward with this, number one, is that we're likely going to step on some toes because you have some deeply held beliefs of who the enemy is. That's our focus. So you need to throw that out. Okay? Work with me. We're going to stick to the Word and we're going to leave it at that. I don't, we are more moved by movies and books about the devil and all of this other stuff than we are anything else and we don't even realize it. Uh, but you'll find out very soon that that is certainly the case. Number two is I do not want to elevate the enemy in your mind in no way. You need to understand one thing about him. He is defeated. Okay? We're talking about him because we need to know how to address this. But we are not glorifying him or giving him power or anything like that that he does not have. And so as we do this, as we begin to go through this, like I said, we're going to do some little, a little bit of cow tipping, but we need to do what Acts 17.11 says. Acts 17.11 says this. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness, but they searched the Scripture daily to find out whether these things were so. The one thing I want you to remember is never take my word for it. You have to search the Scriptures. I could be wrong on something. It's not likely, but it is possible. One of our, our teenagers last week was telling me, you know, he, he hears something, he's like, I don't think that's true. He's like, basically, he said, I just do whatever you say is right, which is words to live by, folks. You really should consider that. But I'm like, I'm like, man, you can't do that. And I showed him this verse, and I'm like, you need to search the Scriptures, because what if I'm leading you astray? You don't know. We cannot be baby birds with our mouths open. We receive that word with all readies. Yeah, okay, that's good. That's different than I've heard. Boy, maybe I've been wrong all these years. Guys, I do this to myself all the time. I have to because I want to stay with the word. So we've got to be good Bereans. Okay, We've got to search the Scriptures. And so as we do this going forward, that's my challenge to you. Search the Scriptures. Make sure it lines up with the Word, not what you think of the Word. So let's dive into this. I know that was a big setup, but I want you to see where we're going. Who is our enemy? That's what we're trying to figure out. Okay, From the passage we read, we know who it's not, right? It is not people. I know it feels like it. I know it's easier to address them, but it is not people. Simply put, it's Satan. All right, can we leave it at that? That is our enemy. It's a pretty easy answer, right? It's not too complicated. But understand that our enemy and our problems are not the same thing. Do you realize that you are affected more so by the decisions you make than you are by the devil himself? Okay? 
When you make a decision, it has, to, as it has consequences attached to that, both good and bad. So, for an example, if you decide to wake up at 5 o'clock every morning and go and hit the treadmill for an hour, and then from there you go and hit the weight room, the consequences of your decision is you won't look like this, okay? Now, on the flip side, if you wake up at 5 a.m. and hit a 12-pack of donuts, the alternative is true, all right? See, our decisions have consequences. I know that's like a stupid analogy, but guys, think about it. That is literally how it is, is what are the end result? So when we think about spiritual warfare, this is what we think about. Look at this picture. This is so often what we picture, right? You got Jesus in his European outfit there with the, the white skin and the blue eyes, you know? At least on the video, the Jesus there had a nice tan. I mean, he couldn't even tan this guy. And then you got the devil. He's all crunchy looking. You see the 666 on his shoulder? That was important. Make sure. Because, you know, it definitely says that, that Satan has the mark of the beast on him. And he's got the little red horns. He's got some funky teeth. Could really use a dentist. Um, pointy ears and all of that. And they're arm wrestling. Right? They're in a battle. They're going at it trying to figure out who's going to win. And this is what we think of spiritual warfare. Now you're like, nah, I don't think of that. Yeah, you do. You just don't know it. In one way or another, we do. We'll make comments. Guys, I've, I've been this, I was on a mission trip one time. Somebody had gotten ill and they made the comment to me. He's like, well, the devil must know that we're here for a bigger purpose because we got sick and the other group didn't. How would he know that? He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. God is. How would he know what you're there to do? We'll put ourselves in a situation like, well, the devil must know that I'm going to a new level because he's attacking me. How would he know that? He's not that smart. I mean, he's smart, don't get me wrong, but he's not. We give him power and we give him um, attributes that are not there. And we don't even realize we're doing it, but we do it often. And so this is our idea of a spiritual warfare. But what if I told you that this isn't correct? What if I told you the way he looks isn't correct? And what if I told you that the idea of the power he has is certainly not correct? So we're going to start today is what do we call him? We got all sorts of names, Lucifer, Satan, the devil, all of these things. But have you ever thought about where those names come from and why we call them all these different things? And have you ever thought about is where these things come from? So when we get into this, we've got to know what they, again, I'm, I'm trying to be thorough, but we're not glorifying him. Please keep that in mind. So is Lucifer, this is what we call him, is that what his name is? Is that really his name? The short answer to that is no, it's not. Okay, all the names of Satan for the most part, with the exception of one that I can verify, are a description of him and not a proper name. We've given him as a proper name. So let's start with this. Start with Lucifer. In Isaiah 14, verse 12, it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Now, on your Bible, you likely have a mark next to the word Lucifer. And if you trace this thing down to, to the bottom, it probably says literally day star or morning star. More often than not, that's what it would say. It's the Hebrew word here that is translated uh, Lucifer is Hillel, H-E-L-E-L. It means to shine or to bear light. Okay. Now, think about that just for a moment. Who is the ultimate light bearer? Jesus is, right? He's the light of the world. So you have the antithesis to this, Correct. So he is a, a to bear light. This is translated Lucifer originally in the Latin Vulgate, Vulgate, right? Written by Jerome. It comes from the Latin word lux, L-U-X, which means light, and ferre, F-A-R-R-E, which means to bring, to bring forth light. 
So Lucifer is not a proper name. It is a description of him. Now, what does he transform himself into? An angel of what? Light. Okay? So you see how that can kind of come full circle. Now, it doesn't mean you can't call him Lucifer because we just need to know how to dress him. But, I mean, I just want to be as thorough as I can with this. The other name that we give him is this. Satan. Right? What does Satan mean? Is that his proper name? It's not. It's a description. The word Satan or Satan means adversary. Both the Hebrew and the Greek words used in the Old and New Testament always mean adversary. So it's not necessarily a proper name. It is a description of him. But there is a proper name that is given in the New Testament that we can look at and, and based off some deduction here, kind of figure out that oh, this is who we think he's talking about. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 24, it says, Now that when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow, referring to Jesus, does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Who would that be? Who else could that be? It's got to be him, right? Beelzebub. But what is this referring to? Is this just suddenly new information? It's not. In 2 Kings chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. And so he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub to the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. So they're going to whoever this god, but he is the god of Ekron. Now, here's what's interesting. When you look at Moab, who was Moab? The people of the Moabites? Moab was the son of Lot and his daughter. Remember, after they escaped Sodom, the two daughters decided they needed to carry the father's name on, and so they both went and got him drunk, and they got pregnant by their own father, and here he is, we see the enemy of Israel in that, watching the Scriptures being fulfilled. So there's no shock there. Now verse 3, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messenger of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you come back? And they said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed of which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So we're seeing this used in a couple of different places. Beelzebub, Beelzebub. Beelzebub in the Greek form is the name Beelzebub, which was a pagan Philistine god. It was worshipped by all the Philistines, especially in the city of Ekron, which it talks about during the Old Testament time. But this name here has a meaning. It is signifying the Lord of the Flies. Okay. Now, what's interesting is what we see in Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew 10, verse 24, it says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they had called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? So he knows what is going on with the Pharisees. Jesus, we're not getting into all the context just for time's sake. But Jesus is constantly addressing the Pharisees. But he's doing this prior to the uh, argument that the Pharisees make. Because two chapters later, they accuse him of doing everything by the power of Satan or by Beelzebub. Now, this meant something to them. Remember, the Philistines were the enemy of Israel. That never changed. Never changed. So the God in which they worship also was the enemy of Israel. So when they address him by name, they are addressing him by proper name. 
So this Beelzebub is likely the name of Lucifer, of Satan, when we think of that. But you, what you've got to realize is that this isn't just a proper name that we are looking at. It's the descriptions of him, understanding who he is. This light bearer. Okay? The tempter is a name that he's given in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. This is Paul talking. Who is the tempter? It's very specific. It's not a tempter. It's not some tempter come to you. It's the tempter. In Matthew 13, verse 19, we see when anyone hears the world, word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. This is the parable of the sowers. Who is this evil one? It's the evil one. The devil, it says in Mark 8. Or excuse me, Mark 4 and Luke 8. It calls him the devil. Verse 38 of Matthew 13 says, The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Who are the sons of the evil one? It is the unbelievers. Those who have not put their faith in Christ. Are they our enemy? No. It's the evil one. They are being obedient to their Father. It talks about this all through the New Testament. How you once have been you know, uh, blasphemers and adulterers and all these things. As you once were. That you followed in your Father's footsteps. But now you are created in the image of God. You guys, we've got to understand this. This is the, the different descriptions given of Him. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. It says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. What is his, another description? He's the accuser of the brethren, accusing us before God. But you can only be accused of something you could do when your sin has been washed away. There is no longer an accusation against you because you've been made right. There are three titles of him that point to the authority in this world that he has. First of all, in John 12, 31, it says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So he's the ruler of this world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who is the God of this world? We always use these things, and we always say them. We, we read them quickly. We just, like, we just make a bunch of assumptions about something. But we've got to understand this. Ephesians 2.2, 2, In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, in the sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air is another title given to him who are the sons of disobedience. Those who are not being obedient to the Holy Spirit and following him to Christ. And then we see in 2 Corinthians 11 uh, 14. And no wonder, for even Satan, the adversary, disguises himself as an angel of light. Do you guys see this? It's time and time again. We see all of these descriptions of Satan telling us about his character. In order to overcome them, we need to know what the Bible says about who we are in him. So all of these things are good, and all of these things are helpful. But I only care about what the Bible calls him and what Jesus calls Satan. And that is defeated. It's all I care about. Because all of these names and all the things he, do, he does are of no accord if you know who you are in relationship to God. 
If you know that, then the work of the enemy will be moot. It will not affect you. Look at Colossians 2. Verse 11, I talked about this last week. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross having disarmed principalities and powers he made a public spectacle of them and he triumphed over them you know what that means he's defeated now we talked about this last week but i want you to get it is that these handwriting of requirements is your sentence what you have done and what the punishment is this was given during this time that if somebody went to jail for any reason whatsoever they would have a handwriting uh, a scroll probably handed to them with what they were guilty of and what the punishment was whether it be jail a beating a flogging sometimes even death but if they were in prison for whatever this was, when the sentence was fulfilled and fully paid for, then they would sign off on it, saying that it has now been fulfilled, it is now complete, and they would keep that with them. That way, if anybody ever an accused him said, no, wait a minute, you murdered so-and-so, they could say, no, that has been paid for. Think about that and what it just said. The handwriting of requirements against us were nailed to the cross by Jesus. Because when we receive Him, that we are not that old person, we have been made new. So that is gone. So when the accuser of the brethren stands before the Father saying, no, wait a minute, they did that, what does He tell them? To tell us die. It is finished. It is complete. It is over. We are not bound by the work of the enemy. We are bound by the work of the cross and the fulfillment of what Jesus did. And therefore, because we sit at the right hand of God, that the enemy should not be our problem. But he is. Because there's one more verse. I don't have it on the screen. But he goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Not who he will, but who he may. Which implies something. You've got to let him. You see, we've got to begin to understand this enemy that we have. The biggest thing we've got to understand is it's not a person, but it's the power behind that person, the motivator, if you will. We have got to look and see, okay, if Jesus died for all people, and every person that I am eyeball to eyeball with is somebody who Christ paid their penalty for, then I need to tell them about that. But we know because of Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8, that as we sow that seed, sometimes the enemy will come and he'll take that seed from their heart lest they become saved. You see, we've got to start enacting the authority that we have in Christ in this earth because we are his hands and feet. So once we understand this name that he is, the thing that we need to understand from here is how does he work and where does he go? And so we're going to begin, I know this is kind of a, a, a little summary getting us into the next steps here, but there are some things that I want to show you. Number one, how does he work? What does he do? We've got to understand the methods of which he goes, the wiles of the devil is what it talks about in Ephesians. The other thing is, is when did this all start? When did Satan fall? There are so many debates about this, so many debates, but... When I look at Scripture, it's very clear to me, and I'm going to show you that. Guys, we're going to look at this, but ultimately what we need to understand more than anything else is we have 
authority over this enemy, and I don't care what name you give him. We have that authority. We've got to walk in that authority. But that only starts when you are born again. You've got to be born again. You don't get there by osmosis You're because your parents were saved. You don't get there by going to church and saying, yep, I go to church every week, therefore I'm right. The only one way we are right with God is when we make Him our Lord and our Savior and that penalty that He paid for us, that is, when we receive that, that is when we're born again. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's with the mouth one confesses and with the heart one believes. You guys, we have to understand that. The enemy is not our problem. It was Jesus' problem. He took care of it. We just got to continue to walk in that authority. You guys with me? Make sure you're here next week.